Okay, hey folks, it's Dylan. Um, this is the Eat Wild Podcast, and uh, I know maybe if you're actually listening to this podcast, the last episode, you would have uh, been treated to the soft and subtle sounds of a studio with Jody Peck, and um, we had a professional mixer with uh, um, Jane was kind enough to record a, 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 the last episode for us. But hey, we're back in the field uh, recording with um, the limited stuff that I have available um, with some minor upgrades to the mics and uh, and we're back hanging around in a wall tent and so you'll just have to put up with the um, lovely sounds of the rain pattering on the tarp above the wall tent and the trucks coming and going and Rob and I sitting here drinking tea in the morning and uh, are breathing in a pop. So forgive me for all that and when we get back into a studio hopefully you'll enjoy that. So welcome to the Eat Well Podcast and here we are. We're uh, I think we're August 25th or something like that and uh, Rob and I are in the northern Rocky Mountains and we're sitting in our base camp tent and uh, we are planning to get up to the mountain and go sheeping but we're waiting out this storm for a window of sort of well no rain and hopefully some visibility to get up the mountain. Anyways I'm joined by uh, Rob Wilson and Rob Wilson is if you've hung around with the Eat Wild crew you'd know him he's one of our Eat Wild uh, mentors and a great guy he also uh, works as a park manager um, at BC Parks with me and um, he's also a uh, search and rescue uh, manager, and I'll, I'll have him, he'll tell you a bit more about that. So in this podcast, what I want to talk about is a little bit about um, uh, planning for a safe trip and some of the things you should do, and uh, talk a little bit about search and rescue. And uh, Rob has some expertise in that area, and we'll also just sort of introduce you to this uh, next couple of weeks that Rob and I are on a sheep slash elk hunt, and um, some, of the, some of the things we've been doing to get ready or and get organized and, and so on. So anyways, welcome, Rob. Why, thank you, Dylan. Cool. So, um, hey, Rob. So, tell me a bit about uh, how did you get involved with Eat Wild? What's the score? Dylan and I, for those of you that don't know, we, we work together in our other job as well. And uh, as a guy who likes hunting and who likes uh, working with people for education, um, there's kind of this natural fit. Eat Wild, um, for me, is something that uh, helps it's a company that really is designed to help people connect with the wilderness environment and help people to uh, safely access food resources to, to feed themselves and their families. And uh, as, a, as kind of an outdoors educator, it connected with me. And um, yeah, so you gave me the opportunity to come on board with the team and, and, and help help folks who are looking to take the next step in their their hunting path um go out on their next adventure safely yeah for sure i, I know that i i, I reached i, I while well, working with you i know you're a good guy and you're very knowledgeable around safety stuff but you, you do a bunch of our training in in basically one of our lead trainers for park stuff when it comes to um how we manage bears and how we use firearms in the field and um how we uh, you do a lot of our, our sort of, what do we call it, like defensive tactics and verbal judo training. Anyway, you take it all very seriously. You do an excellent job of very professional delivery. So I took advantage of you to come over to Eat Wild and, and help deliver sort of somewhat professional, knowledgeable standard of education to um, all our newbie hunters. So cool. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, we've also done a couple of sheep hunts together. And this is uh, our second, well, I guess we've done, a, we've done a bunch of hunts together. And this is our second sort of effort at a big sheep hunt. Um, our first hunt, we ended up flying into, uh, a, we ended up flying into a lake. It was like 200 miles into the woods, and uh, and actually, I remember this sort of kind of a funny. Uh, we had we flew so we flew out of Muncho Lake. If anybody knows where that is, it's the Northern Rockies in British Columbia, and it's one of the few sort of places you can fly into these remote wilderness lakes. And uh, we're I think we we're just like kind of at the last step of our planning, or we we're driving up or something like that. And, and, uh, and, 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 um, and we're sort of talking about how we're going to go about actually hunting in these mountains. And, 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 and I kind of, in, in my mind, I'm just like, okay, we'll fly in and then like, we'll get set up, we'll climb up the mountain, we'll set up base camp. And then, and then Rob, you go one way, I'll go the other way. And, you know, we'll go, we'll check in at the end of the day. And, and Rob kind of looked at me like across the, you know, <laughs> across the, the truck. And he's kind of looking at me going like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, so what was your thinking when I said that? What was your concern? Well, so first off, I think that uh, our, our number one, from my recollection, we actually had that conversation when we got to base camp. And it's kind of 
ironic. I think that uh, that's like the last place you want to have that conversation. You always want to have a conversation about expectations for the for the trip and how, how things are going to sort themselves out um, well before you head off on your adventure. That, that way that everyone knows kind of what the expectations are for the trip. Um, concerns there from from my perspective is as a, a long time search and rescue volunteer one of the number one reasons we get called out to to pull people out of the mountains is because someone is being separated from their group so um, the con- one of the concerns for me is just when we're out in this remote wilderness environment uh, particularly to, we flew 200 miles off of the Alaska Highway there, there's no room for error so in, in that particular circumstance if I was to turn an ankle or you were to turn an ankle and, and couldn't get back to camp I know full well that you're perfectly capable of, of, of improvising a shelter and starting a fire and taking care of yourself for a while I also know perfectly well that I might not know where you are and I might not easily be able to get to you and, and you can last for a while, but help isn't isn't close at hand. It isn't as accessible as say the North Shore rescue team members, all forty of them in helicopters flying down and on top of you and plucking you off the side of the mountain. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. Like you can't just press a button and well you can actually now press a button and get help, but uh it'd be difficult for me to, to find you in that situation or you to find me in that situation should uh, we have to have a, an unplanned night out. So I, for me, it's always important to try to be self-sufficient. Um, as, a, as a search and rescue volunteer, the last thing that I want to have happen is for me to have to call my counterparts out and, and get pulled off the mountain. I mean, it happens. Most people who are in search and rescue are enthusiastic outdoors users and we off I mean, we occasionally have unplanned adventures and the occasional search and rescue member has to get pulled to the mountains that's the reality of of spending time in the mountains but we want to do everything that we can to avoid those circumstances yeah yeah for sure so so that was so just going back to that story i <clears throat> I'm a fairly independent person. I'm certainly an independent hunter. And so it was like really difficult for me to even consider the concept of like wandering around in the woods for 10 days with, with Rob or anybody. I mean, I, I, you know, <laughs> the singer on her. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even then, I mean, the, the reality is, is like, this is both of our trips. So like, you know, you've committed time and money and effort and you have some sense of how you'd like to hunt a mountain. And, and I certainly have my sense of how I'd like to hunt a mountain. And, and just the thought of having to like stop and pause and say, gee, Rob, what do you think? Should we go up that pass or that pass? Let's come to a consensus on this. Oh, God, it makes me want. I just, even right now, my body, like, goes into, like, anxiety and cringes just thinking about having to have those conversations at a regular interval. And, like, and not that, I mean, I I almost, anyways, just because I think it's, I mean, obviously it would be important for both of us to have, have input on how we go about, you know, hunting an area, but it's much easier if you're just, hunting independently then you don't have to have that conversation you just go with whatever your your sense and your intuition and you and all the information you're gathering along the day throughout the day that that guides how you hunt a, a mountain or um you know a little piece of habitat and and um and so yeah so that, that kind of freaked me out initially so we, we did kind of come to a, a, a agreement um and uh, it worked out really well i think basically you just said you know what dylan i know you well enough i'll just follow you around yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, we've known each other for a while, and uh, certainly, I think we've gotten to know each other's personalities over the years, and it it worked out well. So, so you just know I'm not capable of actually <laughs> consensus decision making. <laughs> no, no. So anyway, so that was that. So so, that, but that also like you know puts a bit a bit of a lens on what I want to talk about in this podcast. Is just like you know when you're doing these types of trips, what are some of the things that we should should be thinking about? for safety yeah. and probably having those conversations early enough but also there's some gear we got to take care of there's some tools we can use for safety and as a SAR manager a search and rescue manager and as a uh, as a park manager I mean you you do come to the table with uh, a bit of professional expertise around um, what we should be doing so so just some thoughts so um, first of all how long have you been involved in the search and rescue 
So I joined Search and Rescue as a volunteer in 1996. Cool. Graduated from high school in 93, so three years after I graduated from high school. Yeah. Okay, so so on a Search and Rescue team, um, what kind of what are they looking for in terms of a skill set to bring people on? So Search and Rescue is an interesting thing. The teams that are in existence in the province of British Columbia are, are as diverse as the terrain that we <laughs> live in. So you can picture we've got water and mountains and, and everything in between, and uh, each team has their own particular skill set, their own particular niches, as uh, the areas that they live in require that. So um, most search and rescue teams, the, the primary thing that they're looking for is people that are available, and they need to be available all hours of the day yeah. and they need to be willing to commit a whole bunch of time to training and learning the skills that they need to have uh, to record or to, to assist people in the environment that they're in. So what's the so if, with with the volunteer member what's the average ask that they ask of the community for training in a month? The average ask well typically most of our teams train weekly. Wow. So there's one night a week where you train for three or four hours and most of our teams have a weekend training session once a month so you're looking at a minimum of well I'd say five five days a month five training sessions a month wow per team. Uh, do you guys get paid for that well, uh, that's we, what they call it volunteers right yeah we coined the team the term unpaid professional because we are we're trained but we trained a lot and there's folks that certainly have strong skill sets on some of the teams and certainly folks that are really capable of moving around in the mountains and in environments they specialize in. Yeah, they're pretty 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 badass crew of people that are committed to the uh, volunteer, uh, the search and rescue. I certainly uh, don't think to be one of those, but... Uh, <laughs> no, but you certainly have a lot of professional knowledge and, and uh, you've been doing it a long time and I, I've seen you at work uh, taking the lead on, on searches and I'm always impressed with... Uh, yeah, I, I'm always impressed with the with the SAR teams, just how they can take over uh, a significant incident and uh, and really like pull together their team and just it's kind of funny because like there's guys like me who are professionals in the sense that I'm a park park ranger and there's RCMP, you know, with the RCMP and then there's the park rangers and then you know maybe a, maybe somebody from the municipality all standing around uh, at a search command station and then there's the SAR manager and a couple of his team leads. And the only people that know what to do next are the SAR guys. Like, and they're and they they basically are telling, they're they're establishing our, our incident command team, and then they're they're delegating all the jobs and roles. And meanwhile, like the RCMP and us are just sort of sitting around waiting to be told what to do because you guys are the professionals and you guys are taking the lead. So. Yeah, well, we kind of like it that way. <laughs> yeah, well, you've established. I mean, anyway, so so as you can probably hear um, on the mics. I'd be curious how it actually sounds. Um, but uh, the rain has really picked up, uh, and the pitter-patter is coming to sort of a downpour, which is um, further justifying us uh, farting around in the wall tent making a podcast instead of climbing the mountain to go sheep hunting. So what you're saying is it kind of reinforced the, uh, the investment of bringing all this electronic stuff up into the northern country? Well, actually, you kind of just stole my bridge to the next... <laughs> 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 what I was going to say is that, so we're talking. We're talking a little bit. Actually, before I go into like, now that you've totally severed that uh, my bridge into the next topic, uh, I had another thought that I wanted to ask you about. So, okay, tell me what are the top three incidents that you have to respond to as a search manager? You didn't prep me on this. You're not supposed to be. This is like uh, everything from Eat Wild is one take. Eat Wild, yeah, yeah just. No, that's great. So. That's a great question, and uh, there are certainly pretty smart people out there that gather st statistics on, on SAR incidents and um, anecdotal. I don't care. Anecdotal, yeah, it's pretty cool. There's a there's a bit of science to it, but uh, anyways, the number kind of the top three incidents that search and rescue volunteers respond to are, I would say, number one is people that get separated from their party. So folks might go out for an outdoors adventure, uh, on a hike with, with a group of friends, and one person, for whatever reason, is stronger than the rest of the group, 
they're weaker than the rest of the group and they either um, jackrabbit ahead or they drop off the, the pot and um, the, the main body of the group gets to their destination and, and oh, where's Johnny? Johnny's not here. Uh, he got off the trail and is now missing. So that's kind of the number one. Number two, and, and actually probably one of the most frustrating things for, for us as, as our members is um, just people that aren't prepared for their trip. So either they, they, they don't research their destination ahead of time, and they head off on their adventure blind to, to the challenges ahead of them, and they, they just wander off the trail and get into trouble. And then number three, this is people that generally lack preparedness for their trip. So that can look like a variety of different things that they're not prepared for. It can be someone who just isn't physically fit enough to take on the, the trip. They haven't built themselves up and, and they're taking on too much. They don't have water with them. They don't have uh, adequate footwear. And that one's just kind of a bit of a frustration with us because it's actually quite easy to prepare yourself properly and, and pack the right thing. We, we go to great lengths to try to educate the people through great programs like Adventure Spark. And, and there's lots of really good information out there. All you have to do is take a few minutes to, to think about what you're preparing for and to plan and, and gather the, the adequate supplies and equipment you need to prepare as safely as you can in the backcountry. Obviously, we know that the backcountry is not an inherently safe environment. There's risks to recreation, recreating in the backcountry. But with a few tips and tricks and, and a few minutes of extra preparedness, um, bringing the right planning, bringing the right equipment with us, we can mitigate a lot of those risks. For sure. So, before I move on here, I'm just going to have a little break. We're just gonna, like, we've got a downpour around us, so I just want to see how it sounds. So if it's bearable, we'll carry on. If not, we'll take a break. Okay, I think we're recording again, Rob. All right. Sounds great. So we just had a little break from our podcast uh, the uh, rain shower has sort of calmed down a bit, so we're not rumbling like completely, uh, and we've adjusted our recording levels. So hopefully you guys will get a nice, clear listen on what we're trying to get up to here. Anyways, we were just chatting with Rob Wilson, and um, so Rob, you're, we're just talking about preparation and things you're, you should bring. So maybe tell me about uh, what are the, some of the essentials, and how do you go about sort of... When you say like a little bit of planning, a little bit of thought, like for essentials, what, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about food, water, and shelter. Those, those are the three things that I always want to be prepared to, uh, to, to build or to have with me so that so, I know So what, that. Is, what does shelter look like? So shelter for me is an improvised shelter. I'm not bringing a, a, an eight-pound backcountry tent with me on every ridgeline that I wander around. It's simply a, a tarp or an improvised shelter of that nature. So, okay, so would that be like your little... Because uh, we, we just had this conversation because we were just packing our bags for going up the mountain for an eight-day stint. And where I was looking... Uh, uh, like Basically, I'm going to have my tent on my back for the next eight days. Yep. So that so that would be a shelter in one, one Certainly sense. Certainly is, yeah. So I need, do I need to bring my emergency tarp as well? Well, I, I would say you do. You need to have an emergency tarp with you because what you're planning to do, Dylan, is climb up the mountain and set your, your camp up, and then you're going to hang out on a ridgeline wandering around in the mountains away from your tent. So, I think uh, so be prepared for what? Yeah. For an unplanned night out. Yeah, for an unplanned night out. So, so that unplanned night out is a shelter. So what is yeah. your, so you say you have a tarp. We talk, also looked at, uh, we, still, like what we call the space blankets or yep. emergency shelters, yep. a little wrap up. They're, they're, they're not much anything really. I mean, I couldn't really imagine relying on one of those to survive the night. Yeah, it'd be a pretty, pretty shitty night out. Can I say that on a podcast? Uh, you can. I can always edit you in post-production. You know, <laughs> go over this and find you. I'll just say, I'll just erase all the stupid things that you say. Yeah. Well, I never say stupid things, though. So, <laughs> so, so it's yeah, easy. So there's one take again. <laughs> Pretty rarely, anyways. Uh, so okay. So that so shelter is is we also have those like one pound 
uh, tarps, yeah. sill tarps, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the sill tarps are great, and I've certainly, I actually had on a hunting trip this this past fall, I had to pull out a bit of a an emergency blanket, one of those little baby um, like two door emergency blankets in in a bad storm, and it actually it, it was amazing at how efficient it was just to help me weather the storm. But they're not very comfortable, so I think those sill tarps are great. Totally. They're also, Good. I was just going to say, they're also kind of a multi-function thing. Like you, you can um, pull that, pull that sill tarp out if it starts raining out, and you want to keep glassing, and you you can keep yourself warm and dry. They're, they're great tools. Yeah, I was just going to say, like when you're, when we're thinking about some of this gear, like some of it goes into your pack and stays at the bottom of the pack and you'll never touch it again, yep. right? And there's a few things like that which we'll talk about, but there's a lot of things like the siltarp, which I think is an essential uh, tool for hunting or backpacking because it provides a couple things. It gives you that overnight like survival if you have an unplanned overnight, but multiple times again, we'll probably do this a lot this year because we're our forecast is basically for rain and sun over the next eight days. Um, we're, every time the rain comes out, we're going to like stop and we're going to whip out the siltarp and string it up between a couple of bushes or a couple of trees and sit underneath it. Yeah, it's it's a critical piece of equipment. You yeah. want to try to avoid getting wet when you're out in the backcountry. Yeah, it's essential that you don't get wet. So, yeah. so we can't dry out when we're up there. So that's, that's right. So I mean, that's probably, I, I didn't get around to asking you, and, and I'll, I mean, you know, I, I was going to say, what are, the, what are the actual injuries that you pull off the mountain as a result of unprepared uh, hikers? And... Oh, it comes from, I mean, there's a huge range of injuries from, like, twisted ankles to people who are just exhausted. Uh, hypothermia is a big factor in any injury, right? Yeah. Well, I remember back when we were rangers on, on the North Shore, that was one that we see, would see the most uh, loss of life was was hypothermia. Yeah. People just getting, you know, getting turned around in the snow and finding themselves, you know, wandering and exhausting themselves. Yeah. And, and then not having a mechanism to stay dry and warm. Yeah. And eventually that, that resulted in, in, in death on a number of occasions or else very, yeah. very, very scary. Um, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. The other thing is we saw we see a lot of people who are destination-oriented. So they, they, they have a destination in mind. They're not willing to, to deviate from, from that uh, end goal. And uh, that gets people into a lot of problems. Oh, for sure. So they have to make it to the summit for that selfie because that's what everybody else did. Exactly. They want, to be, they want to put down their Instagram feed. Yeah. Yeah. They want to be the next hot thing on Instagram or something like that. Yeah, dying for a selfie, man. Yeah. That's uh, I heard that literally and figuratively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. We've had a couple of incidents in parks where people have literally died because they were trying to take that ultimate selfie yeah. next to a waterfall or, or up on top of a yeah up on top of a cliff and and uh, slipped and fallen into the water and. Pretty devastating, for sure. Yeah, a few weeks ago, our SAR team got called out back-to-back calls to the same spot two days in a row uh, for folks that got off route on a bit of a scramble. And all they had to do was turn around and go back the way they came, and they would have been fine. But they kept uh, proceeding on with their on their path of, of uh, self-destruction, you could call it, yeah. to the point where... Uh, one of the groups actually fell off the mountain and, and we had to pull them off using a long line. So that's crazy. All they had to do was turn around. So yes, that's very familiar because as we're going sheep hunting and guaranteed we're going to be faced with that a number of times. That yep. that, that moment where we're like, we're, we're, we've identified, we've seen a ram, we want to go take a closer look at it and for us to get closer to it, we're going to have to negotiate some terrain that is going to bring that into question. Like, Absolutely. Is this a safe route? And and I think the point that you brought up earlier, which was interesting, is like, is we have a, our threshold of risk is much higher when you're in the backcountry because there's just there's no, for one thing, the the response time is longer in the backcountry, and there's limited resources available. Basically, your hunting partner is available, and you've got to get you, the the chances of getting from that that broken leg. Getting it stabilized in a hospital is a lot longer from, say, if you're on the North Shore, um, scrambling around on the rocks and you have a fall and you could be in hospital within two hours, whereas here mm-hmm. it could be two days before yeah. we get we get you out. So, so when you look at that ridgeline and go, am I going to cross that ridgeline and look at the potential risk of slipping and falling on off that ridgeline or a cliff, edge of a cliff that you're on, 
like you have to manage it to a much more uh, uh, conservative yeah. level. Yeah, our tolerance for risk is greatly reduced. Yeah, but as we, if we're in the mo moment where we're chasing after a few sheep, that tolerance seems to go up whether you like it or not because we're sort of in that moment where you could, what did you call it? The, the destination focused or? Yeah, destination for summit fever basically so you could call it sheep fever you're destination oriented right? Destination oriented. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that causes concern for sure and we have yeah. to be mindful of that and, and I yeah. recall on our on our previous trip we had that happen a couple times where we were like man, that like I don't know if we should. Well, a couple times we went, we did that one route to get over that's to where right. the Rams were, and we're like, man, that, that's like high risk, and like, are we going to do that again? Yeah. We had that longer conversation around, and, yeah. and I think that turned out to be the only way to get there. It was. We tried uh, an alternate route. I'm not sure if you remember that, but it was the bushwhack from hell. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> I've got a couple of great pictures of it that yeah. just like it just yeah exudes torture and pain and poor decision making. Yeah, uh, I think I use it in one of my slideshows about like yeah all the things you shouldn't do. That yeah, when taking a route. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So just to paint the the picture of that, of that to to our listeners, um, we, basically we had this this great kitchen set up and we were able to glass these rams these these sheep up from across the valley from our kitchen and uh, there was quite the adventure you had to climb down into valley bottom and then climb up onto this ridge crest to, to get to these sheep and we planned out a couple of different routes and had a good conversation about our options and it was either the bushwhack from hell or, or travel through this a bit of a side hill street gully and well yeah the, the one route was and it's you know with respect to like route planning was we were already above tree line yeah. where we were camped and so from our, what we call our kitchen area, we were sitting in the Alpine, looking across the valley at what, 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 what amounted to the main sheep mountain, which yeah. we didn't know until we were there, but over the course of 10 days, we realized that's where all the sheep were after we hunted everywhere else. So we'd see sheep on this hill every day, and new sheep would show up, and we'd look at them, and every once in a while, they would, there'd be new sheep there, yep. and bigger sheep or whatever, so we'd have to go over there every day and look at them. So every day we tried to find a better route, but the, my, my initial thought and it would always be to like to, to stay high as long as you can yep and, and try and the easiest route through the alpine is typically uh, if you stay high above the uh, willows and the and, oh, yeah. the and the and the fir tree or the sorry the, the little uh, the little tree the little sub 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 and fir there i guess uh and uh anyways and then just stay high and then just contour at a high level but that means you got to go down into a series of like little uh you go over these ridges and gullies and ridges yeah. and gully, ridge and gully as you, as you side hill around the tops of these yeah. mountains and then the back of a basin and then up and over into an, onto another mountain, which is a long way to get there, plus there's lots of up and down. But you're walking through alpine, so yeah. you're not, your legs aren't catching on willow and you're not fighting through trees. And Yeah, buck brush basically kills you. It just takes so long to get through it and it saps a lot of energy. Yeah, and it's also, we were dealing with inter intermittent weather, so it was wet. And then, so a lot of moisture stays on those trees. So it's yeah. not it's not typically you want to well, again avoid getting wet. So by working through wet bush, you're going to get soaked, and uh, there's not much you can do about that. So if you stay high, I mean, at least you can stay away from getting you know drenched. And anyways, carry on, Rob. What was our alternative? So our alternative after we you know went through this pass a couple times was to avoid risk. We thought, well, maybe there's an an old horse trail in the bottom of this valley. There must be something that goes up that mountain, and we had found you know a few horse trails in our in our travels through that area. So just right from the get go, it, the, our plan kind of went south, eh? And we we uh, traveled into the valley bottom, into the black hole, essentially. Well, and before we go, we did spend a lot of time assessing it, looking oh, at it, going. Absolutely did. And then we looked at the map and said, okay, well, if there's going to be, a, definitely it's got to be a horse trail going up and down the valley. Yeah, there's a stream there, and it just makes sense that there's yeah, a horse trail and running it's a, up It's down a main pass from, you know, one of the main river drainages over to the over to one of the main, another main river drainage. And 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 the spot where we, we there was one spot that you could potentially take horses up where the angle of the slope wasn't too steep. And, and I, I figured, okay, if there's going to be a horse trail, it's going to be going up that one slope. It's going to come branch off of the main trail along the river. So when we got down there, 
we sort of, whatever horse trail there was in the bottom of the valley kind of petered out and disappeared. It might have been a game trail. It might have been a horse yeah. trail. And then when we kind of looked at this one ridgeline that goes up to where the rams were, like, we sort of went back and forth along the bottom of it, thinking and hoping and praying that yeah. there was some type of a trailer. Yeah. And, and there just wasn't. It was just, it was just shitty. Yeah. Yeah, at the very best, the main trail through the valley bottom was a long unused horse trail <laughs> or maybe just the creek i mean that that's one yeah. thing about horse trails around these parts it's like like they don't i mean horses are they're not just people through the creek they just walk up and down the creek yeah. whereas that would be we'd have wet feet so you know we're always kind of hoping for a nice horse trail on you know across the side hill or something like that but anyways no trail so we were pushing through thick uh thick conifer trees that were just draping us with moisture and then we busted through those eventually only to get to like what's called sort of slide alder which is like like well alder but instead of it's growing straight up and down it's actually like the tips of the trees are pointing downhill that's right yeah like what like what do you call those with the guys the guys that ride with horses and they have the uh spears like, jousting jousting yeah they're kind of so you're kind of working your way up dodging these jousting poles as you go up the hill <laughs> yeah slide alder is not a happy place to be oh and then it, and then you break out of that and then you get into willow which is like super thick willow that you like have to like basically like dive through and then pull <laughs> yourself up and dive through and pull yourself up and eventually you might pop out in the alpine eh? yeah like six hours later soaked to the ass just beat the shit out of your Gore-Tex and everything else like so yeah, so the, the interesting thing there was we were trying to avoid exposure to about 10 minutes of, of maybe 10 minutes of, of, of crossing a scree field in a, in a gully. And, uh, you know, our way, I think we actually chose to go back that way where we were exposed to that gully again. And we talked about it afterwards, and our exposure to risk was actually just like slipping out on this talus field or the scree field and, and sliding maybe 50, 60 feet to the bottom of, of this green field. And yeah, you probably scrape yourself up and twist an ankle or something like that. But conversely, the exposure to exhaustion, uh, getting wet by walking through all the brush, getting turned around in the brush for six hours of, of slogging through, through the brush um, on our alternate destination, we were exposed to maybe lower levels of risk, but for a much longer period of time. And it's always balancing that, that risk out. Well, and a lot more, uh, a couple of other things. So if you, you get exhausted and wet, and then you have an accident, your, your, your time frame for managing that just shrinks down because Absolutely. you're already, yep. uh, yeah. So you're, you're already wet, you're kind of screwed. And if you get exposed on the mountain and, 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 uh, I mean, you can, you can die of exposure yep. right away. I mean, that's, that's one of the challenges. So, um, the other other risk factor there was that we we're also with super low uh, visibility corridors. So, yep. so we are in grizzly bear country. There's bears everywhere. We when we're up in the Alpine, we have the advantage of saying, "Oh, grizzly bear on that mountain, let's avoid it today." And the grizzly bear over there, let's avoid that. Uh, or if we're just cruising across those ridges, we're like, "Oh, grizzly bear, two hundred meters away. Yep. Let's get out of here." Whereas in that thicker stuff, as we're pushing through, you could be nose to nose with a grizzly bear at any point. Oh yeah. So another yeah. factor of risk. But, um. How long does it take, on average, to die from hypothermia? Not on average, but in, what's, the, what's the shortest time frame you've seen for somebody getting lost to dying of, of hypothermia? Well, I haven't been there to watch them expire, per se. Okay, but, so yeah, uh, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. What, what I would say is it, it can happen very quickly. Like there's, there's folks that don't even make it a night out in the backcountry. Yeah. Which is, which is incredible. Like, yeah. So one night. So go, a, n- a number of people on the North Shore basically expire if you don't find them right right in that afternoon. Yeah. Necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about the North Shore of Vancouver um, for those that might not be familiar with it, and uh, the North Shore of Vancouver in the winter, in particular, is a snowy environment, and, and it's beautiful because if it's clear night, you can stand up on any of the three main kind of ski resorts and look down towards Vancouver and see the lights of the city. And for folks who, uh, you know, might be looking for a little off-piste or, or out-of-bounds adventure in the ski resorts, they, they just kind of duck the ropes and they have this kind of, this, this perception in their heads, anyone who's up there, that you can see the lights of the city so you can get there, right? And yeah. oftentimes we'll see people um, 
entering into these gully systems that are quite steep and not not being able to get themselves out or continuing downhill towards the lights of the city to the point where they're exhausted and they just can't physically get out of those gullies. Yeah. But it's snowy. There's snow on the ground, obviously, mm-hmm. there's skiing. Uh, but it's like, it might not even be freezing out. It's like maybe minus two, maybe plus five. Yeah. And people, in that because because it's a moist, wet environment, yeah. um, before long, you're either sweating to try and hike out of yeah. there or it's raining because it's the north. It's the North Vancouver on the way in the winter, or it's snowing, wet snow. Any of those factors cause you to get wet, and as you get wet, it starts to draw the heat out of you, and your body. My understanding of hypothermia basically, your body is no longer able to reheat itself. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So what your body does essentially is it draws the blood out of your your limbs and tries to protect the core, and eventually. Um, it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle of, of, of not being able to rewarm your body. Your, your core temperature just drops down so low that it, it's impossible to rewarm it without medical care. Yeah, so so if you if you are exposed to hypothermia, uh, well, first thing is that we've sort of been harping on is to stay dry in the first place. Yep. That's key. Absolutely. Uh, bring your shelter with you. Wear Gore-Tex. Have layers, like fleece layers that will keep you warm even if they're wet. Yep. Wool and fleece will keep you warm even if you're wet. And then uh, and then if you do get soaked to the ass, then you got to figure out a way to get warm. And and, and you, you can't warm up yourself once you're hypothermic. You need to find an outside heat source to help you warm up. So what are some things that you would do in a, in a, in a search situation to help get somebody warmed up in the backcountry? Snuggling. That's that's one of the things that I prefer to do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> cuddle up to a stranger. Yeah, I don't yeah, think you're absolutely. allowed to do that as a professional. Oh, oh, wait a second. Okay, so um, yeah, so some of the things that we do first off is we get them we get them dry. So warm and warm and dry. So in order to get them warm, we got to get them dry. That means stripping all the wet clothes off that person and, and getting them in some some dry clothing. Um, before we do that, we set up a shelter so they can stay dry. Yeah, and uh, after we we've, we've got them dry, they're under a shelter, we start dealing with rewarming. If they're not uh, truly hypothermic, they're just borderline hypothermic, we're, we're rewarming our subjects and that looks like uh, a fire, it might look like warm fluids if, if uh, you know, we've been in contact with a paramedic and, and they authorize that. Um, but yeah, fire is, is key. Another thing that we've certainly done in the past is when you set up your, your shelter, you keep it nice and low so it traps heat. And then uh, you can use a stove under the shelter. If it's an open shelter, it's not totally enclosed. And just the act of having a stove in and boiling a pot of water uh, can actually warm up that shelter significantly. You know, really even just having a couple of folks in there, the body heat trapped under that shelter helps to, to raise the temperature of the shelter significantly over the surrounding environment mm-hmm. I've heard like even like putting uh, if you can get them into a sleeping bag they won't be able to heat themselves up in the sleeping bag but if you put a couple of hot water bottles in there that, that additional heat source will help yep. yeah for sure that's uh, something you can do and you put the hot water bottles in there and they, in their uh, armpits growing the key areas of heat loss and it helps to, to warm folks up yeah so what about the whole skin on skin thing would you crawl in there with them and Warm up is that? Or I heard that we got kiboshed a while ago. That doesn't really work. Well, I don't know. I think in an emergency situation, <laughs> maybe those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it depends on you know what your hunting partner looks like. Yeah, <laughs> well, your hunting partner, I guess. <laughs> but, but anyways, finding out that he's worth getting warmed up. Fire sounds good. There's a it's a great story my grandpa told me, and I don't really remember all the details, but it's uh, he had he was running his dog team across a lake in northern Manitoba. At the time, he was, uh, he was, I think he was pretty young. He must have been like 18 or 19, and he was, uh, he had a trap line up north, and he's checking his trap line, and he goes across the lake, and I guess it must be breaking up or something like that, because he, he goes in the lake. Um, his, fortunately, his dogs, I think, didn't go in the lake, so they were out, and he was able to, like, I guess the dogs kind of figured it out, so he was able to, like, grab onto the sled or a dog or something like that to get him out of the lake, which was kind of miraculous. Yeah, that's something else. Uh, and so he gets out of the lake, and he's apparently he's quite close to a little island in the middle of the lake. So he manages to get to the island, and he thinks about making a fire. And he says he has, I guess he has, he must have some fuel or some gas. With him. 
So we just lit the whole island on fire. Oh, gee. Yeah, and just hung around on this island and just like basically dried right out and uh, carried on with his day. Yeah, well, lighting the island on fire might make a great signal to people to say, hey, I'm screwed up and I need help. Oh, yeah, I think but, he was just trying to dry out, and it was just the easiest thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just trying to get back to work. Light the island on fire. Yeah. That, I, gee whiz, that's a heck of a story, and it, it speaks to me. Like I know that I'm two generations removed from uh, a homesteader that had to be in that environment every day. Like They lived in the wilderness, and they, they survived in the wilderness. It sounds like your grandfather's same thing you know that was just what you did and and in today's day and age most folks the wilderness is a is a foreign thing to them and and uh, it, it takes it's not intuitive like it was back back in your grandfather's day my grandfather's day no no for sure so yeah no it's definitely we are separated from um we don't live and breathe it no, and, and it's, not, it's, it's kind of like, you know, in that situation, that was kind of matter of fact for my grandfather. It was like, well, you just got to get dry. So, like, the whole island on fire, who cares? Like, whereas in this day and age, we're just a little bit, uh, yeah, we just, we just approach our safety a bit different. We rely on the different tools and, and gear and stuff to, to, to make sure that we can um, stay safe and stay dry and, and stay. So, so, speaking of which, let, let's go back to our list of things that we should have sure, in our absolutely. kit. Absolutely. So, we, we've, we're kind of coming up on like half, or a little over, yeah, we're almost coming up on 40 minutes on this. So, let, let's, let's get, get break down our sort of essentials. So, we talked about staying dry and shelters. We started out there. Um, what else are you thinking about for, you talked about three things that you started out with? Yeah, food, water, shelter. So, we talked about the shelter, we talked about staying dry. Um, you need to bring some extra food with you. So, for example, on our trip, we're, we're bringing extra meals with us out into the backcountry in the event that we have to, to spend a few extra days out. Uh, it weighs a little bit more in your pack, but you need to have that with you, and you've got to have the ability to, to drink water. So uh, you need to bring some, sort, some form of uh, water treatment with you, whether it's um, just the, the emergency pills, which we, we seem to like because they're super light and most of our water sources we're getting from springs in the mountains or a water filter of some type. Yeah. Food, water, shelter, that's the primary. So there's this thing, uh, I think I've, I've heard it a couple times, that the rule of three yep. for, for surviving. So you can survive for three hours without shelter. You can survive for three days without water. And you can survive for three weeks without food. Yeah. Theoretically. Yeah, I mean, that's you, right. Yeah. So in your prioritization of what you need to deal with if you're screwed up in the mountains, yeah. is number one, get that shelter up, get dry. Yeah. Secondly, you're going to need water eventually, but maybe not in the next six to ten hours for yeah. when rescue's going to come. And you certainly don't need to start you know, foraging for berries and turning up, you know, looking for ants to eat to yeah. get a bit of protein. Yeah. So, so just hope, but hopefully a, but a power bar or you know, an extra lunch will go a long way when you know you're sitting out there for... You know, twelve hours, twenty-four hours, a couple days, just to, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And we've we've certainly had people test that food, water, shelter, the the rule of threes on numerous occasions. And I can tell you for a fact that I know of people that have survived for a few weeks without food. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing. But what will happen though, and what even happens to me after six hours without food, is my decision making gets poor. Yep. So I get, and, and one of the things you'll need to do is if you're ever in a situation where you're waiting around for someone to come find you, is you need to stay calm and you need to like make good decisions about what you're going to do next. And, and uh, if you don't have food, uh, one thing will happen is you, you, you might go into a sort of a panic or an anxiety, anxious state. And Absolutely, yeah. So the other, so, so it's, it's funny, we're talking about shelters and such and, uh, uh, it makes me think, so we so we do at Eat Wild. We do this like three day hunter field skills workshop where we take twelve new uh, inspired hunters out into deer country at a friend's ranch, and we do three days of what we think are the essentials to uh, be able to hunt deer in British Columbia, and hopefully develop some bunch of skills that you, that you can uh, tra- that you can transfer to either elk hunting or moose hunting or and uh, and such. Um, but one of the things we do is we do like fire building and shelter building, and it's Kind of remarkable. So, so Rob, what would you say out of out of the twelve people, how many people could start a fire? And hold on, before I say that, I should let these people know that we're in the 
caribou country or, or, uh, on the on the caribou plateau, so it's you know dry fur ecosystem. Usually in October when it's been dry all summer long, yep. so the, the, there's a lot of fuel that's available. Um, we also give them a lighter and a candle, yeah, and as part of a sort of a scavenger hunt before that that they do. So what out of twelve people? Oh, then we also say to people, you got to build a fire that can uh, that can you can roast a marshmallow on, yeah. And how many people can do that under five minutes out of our group? Under five minutes, two to three people out of our group typically are able to do that. Yeah, and that's ideal fire. That's ideal yeah. conditions. I mean, yeah. like most conditions. Like right now, if you if you went outside right now and tried to build a fire, um, you could probably do it because there's enough. Like it's been raining for two days straight, but there's enough. It's been dry for the previous three months here, so you could probably just dig down and find some stuff. But yeah. things are pretty saturated, and will become more and more saturated as we get into the fall here. And it's not not easy to build fire here um, but yes two, two to three people so yeah. and then by the end of our little exercise where we show people actually how to build a fire it's, it's pretty the people are blown away yeah I think it takes us about five minutes and and then everyone can build fire yeah, yeah. doesn't I, take long I actually learned to build fire pretty late in life I, I was like I someone told me to like the TP system for building fire like, like back when I was a kid and that's actually not a great system for building fire but uh, one of these days I'll do a YouTube video on on how how to build a fire with, with Jeff or something. Maybe I'll do that this trip. It's like I think it's a great idea. Yeah, and uh, I think we did cook it over a fire. Maybe he went over it there, but we'll just do it. We'll do it. Anyways, that'd be a fun one. Uh, but certainly help build, yeah, building fire. Because building fire is actually a skill, right? So like, you can, everybody can build a fire under those ideal dry conditions. Yeah. But when you get in a situation where you're wet, you're cold, you're kind of in a panic, like the, I think build the fire is a great way to way you get warm, but it keeps your focus and it gets you kind of focused on doing something that's sort of semi-productive is going to sustain, you know, help yeah. help the situation out. Um, it also acts as a signal, yeah. and it also, you know, yeah, it's part of that big head game of being lost. Is wait a second, I can I can actually I can survive this situation. I've got a shelter and I've got a fire, warm and dry. I can I can survive for a while. Yeah, you get a good mental space, right? Yeah. You're like, okay, this isn't so bad. I'm yeah. all right. So yeah, so. But with with fire building, it's a skill like anything else, and I think it's well worth the, you know once you've built up those fundamentals skills on how to do it, then you got to practice. Yep. So so I've started whenever I'm out hunting, like if I get back to the truck ahead of my partner or whatever, I just regardless of what's going on, I just build a fire. Yeah. So just just like I get used to building fires in different ecosystems under different conditions, and you kind of just get better and better and more confident at building it, and then you know at any when that time comes that you really need a fire. That you feel like, hey, I can make it happen, and and uh, how the confidence it'll go. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing we do with that group is we do uh, shelter building. Yep, and uh, which is pretty simple, but just you know, running a guy line and stretching a tarp over top. Yeah, it's pretty simple. What uh, you know, most people think of building a shelter, they they string a tarp up six or eight feet above them so they can stand under it, and they lose all their heat. And there's a few simple little tricks that you can do with fire and shelters to. Make life that much more comfortable. Yeah, for sure. So, anyways, definitely skills worth worth learning about. Definitely a couple of video ideas for us to probably follow up on building a shelter and a survival camp. That's a good one. We'll do it anyway. So, let's let's try and get kind of wrap towards wrapping up this podcast. So, we talked about um, we talked about a couple more things. So, a couple of things you want to have in your kit. So, speaking of fire, like I would say in my survival kit, the bic lighter is an essential. Yeah, and not just one either. Two. Yeah, two. So, I see on a lot of like people's survival lists, they're like waterproof matches. Yeah. Have you ever actually been able to light a waterproof match? Yeah, they suck. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I just went through my uh, my survival kit before this trip, and I was trying to pair out a little bit of extra weight, and I found my little thing of waterproof matches that I've sworn at for years and just tossed them out. Perfect. Just yeah. put a big lighter in there. Yeah. It's this amazing piece of technology that yeah. French came up with. It's like it's something else. Yeah. yeah, just amazing. So a big lighter. Uh, so a couple of big lighters. I have one kind of bit floating around in my pocket or on the top yep. of my pack for you know lighting the stove or whatever. And then I have one in my safety kit full of fuel that that's my backup safety lighter. Um, the other thing I bring is a candle, like about two inches of candle, two or three inches of candle, and that's sort of my fire starter because what I what I do with it, I just light it, and then it becomes like a a sustained flame underneath my tinder. So if my tinder's a bit damp. Yeah. Um, that that sustained flame will eventually dry out the tinder to the point where it can combust. Um, so it's a nice way to have. I mean, a lot of people have tips and tricks for you know that fire starter tricks like soaking cotton balls. And yeah. What Everyone's is, got their own thing. Yeah. 
piece of rubber tire, that kind of thing. But, but for me, I just like the simplicity and the reusability of a candle. So Because mm -hmm. I can get 10 or 20 fires out of a two or three inches of candle under yep. the most conditions. So that's, so that's my trick. Um, you're not burning your thumb holding the lighter either. Yeah, yeah. That's the other <laughs> thing. Yeah, that brings me back to old days. Um, anyways, uh, what else can we talk about? Okay. Um, what about communications? There's been huge advancements in what we should be taking with us in our communications and 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 this. What what are your what's your go-to right now? Yeah, right now it's that in-reach device. I think it's a pretty great tool. Um, we're going through a, a big evolution and rapid change in technology, and and I think the latest and greatest for me is is the satellite messenger called InReach. and uh, it's a really neat tool because it allows you to communicate with. Uh, your friends and loved ones at home should you choose to do so you got to be careful though because it'll actually give away your secret spots if you do that um so you can do that but the other and to me the real the real win with this inreach device is that you can actually communicate with your hunting partners uh, using the inreach device uh, through text messaging while you're out in the backcountry thousand miles away from a, a cell signal so this is great for me because now rob and i can hunt separately on you know on, on the same sheep hunt. So I can go off and run on my hunt, and he can go off on his hunt, and we can take a break from each other for the day, and then we can have the comfort of saying, okay, we're going to check in at noon via our inReach devices, and just have a quick check in so we know we, and then that's going to give our location. Um, so it's actually it's an amazing tool. Yeah, I mean we used to use those little handheld FRS radios for for check ins like that, but uh, they're. They're noisy. You're always getting squelchy feedback. If you're like whitetail hunting, you're never, you're not going to sneak up on anything with one of those FRS radios. Um, but it also extends to the range that you can be uh, apart now because yeah. you're not reliant on that line of sight communication. Yeah, and we're and it's amazing because we're out of service now too. And I, and and I've, we've got other, we've got our buddy Cole who's sheep hunting separately from us. He's but he's in our same camp. And he's able to sort of send me stay in touch as a safety net with us, which is great. Mm -hmm. And then we got other buddies who are coming up in a couple, well, in a week from now that we're going to go elk hunting with, and, and they can check in with us and kind of just I can tell them to since we're stuck here in the tent for the first three days of our sheep hunt, they're going to have to pick us up some extra beer and a few other things. Yeah, that bring we're more booze. <laughs> yeah, we need a few more things because we're burning up our our, our supply of uh, of real food and 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 uh, yeah yeah after adult drinks here for the afternoon. Okay, so. Uh, so this is so. What's been amazing about this? It has replaced those two-way radios yep. for the most part. It's replaced the satellite phone, which is yep. something we've used. We either rented them or, or have, you know, found a way to borrow one for the for our trips. And they're somewhat intermittent. The ability for a satellite phone to maintain a, a, a conversation yep. with someone. So you're constantly. What ends up happening in a lot of our trips? You're like, oh, I'm gonna try and call home. I gotta call home on. Uh, on the on the fourth, and you know, you just don't have reception that day, and then it rolls into being maybe not a. You end up having to spend a good portion of your day worrying about trying to find that signal to get call home because your loved one at home is expecting that call. You don't want to send them into a, a concern. Um, whereas the inReach satellite, once it once you load it up, that message is going to get sent, and it's yep, a lot much more right. reliable message. And and uh, yeah. Yeah, the inReach device, it's just sending like a little blip, a second of data up to the satellite, and uh, you get that confirmation message from the satellite that, that that blip of data is being sent, whereas the satellite phones, yet you would have to have a constant stream of data to have that voice communication, so it's um, much more efficient, uses less batteries, half the, half the size, so you're taking up less room and less bulk in your, or less weight in your pack. Um, and, and they're reliable, so they're yeah. a great tool. Yeah, they're super reliable, and the uh, they also replace your GPS. So if you have a, a Garmin GPS, which is sort of the standard reliable GPS system, um, that they have the same software in terms of the mapping and the, and the ability to set waypoints and such, in addition to this two-way communication with satellites and other, and other units. So pretty awesome tool. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's kind of an essential now. I, I think they're around five or six hundred bucks, and yep. they have a monthly plan at about thirty bucks a month. Is so yep. definitely an, an investment. But I would say for for especially for like you know, Rob, you have family, you want to check in regularly. Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's essential. Yeah, certainly creates peace of mind for everybody involved. And uh, I'm already I, I'm sold on it because you know I can. I, we were we were 
we were out fishing out to the west coast of Vancouver Island and we got a couple of boats and, and we can actually just text each other yeah. over the boats as we get out of range on VHF with each other. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing tool. So that's yeah. cool. Um, okay, let's, let's think about the last couple things we should have in our packs before, just for that safety component. What's in our absolute necessary kit for safety? We talked about fire, shelter, communication, food, water, butt pad. Oh, a butt pad. Because you got to keep your butt warm and cozy. So, so it's, it's, you're insulating yourself from the ground by using that butt pad. So you, you got your shelter set up, you got your fire set up. Um, sitting on the cold ground is no fun. So if you, ha if you have your butt pad, you can sit on the ground, you can use your safety blanket, the little tin foil thing that you keep in your pack to, to try and retain some extra body heat. But you don't want to lose your body heat through, your, through the parts that are touching the ground. You also don't want to lose your body heat through your head. So butt pad and toque are kind of, you're covering your bottom and your top and you're retaining as much body heat as you oh, can. Oh, that's great. The, the, toque, the toque is a great one to, to mention for sure. Like, uh, I always have a toque and gloves because particularly a toque, they say something like you lose 70% of your heat uh, out of your head or something like that. Yeah, I think it's something like 90%. It's, it's crazy. significant, yeah. But a good trick, if you're ever in your sleeping bag and you're cold at night put and your feet are cold, if you put a toque on... Yep. Your feet will warm up. Yeah, and people don't believe it. I don't we believe it. We tell them that all the time. I know. Right? You do it, they're like, holy, that's amazing. Oh, how was your sleep? Oh, it was pretty cold. My, my arms were cold. Oh, put a toque on. They'll give you the strangest look. Make <laughs> any sense. But yeah, it's yeah. amazing. So, so of your essentials, like to stay warm and dry, that, maybe that's another thing. Like, talk a little bit about clothing. Like, uh, I would say you're going to have a Gore-Tex. If you're out in the mountains oh, doing yeah. this kind of stuff, you're going to have a Gore-Tex jacket, yep. Gore-Tex pants. Um, underneath that jacket, you're going to be wearing whatever you're wearing. But I have I have a down like a little compact yep. down jacket that mostly lives at the bottom of my bag. But if I was ever in a situation where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna sit around on my butt pad underneath my shelter yep. and wait something out, or um, I break that out, and yep. it's that insulation layer. Um, provided it stays dry, it's it's a lifesaver. Yeah, it so. absolutely is a lifesaver. And and I know that you and I both carry these little the plastic garbage bags for packing meat out. That's a lifesaver too. That you might not even think about. Poke a little hole in that in the top end of that bag, and kind of pull that hole around your head, and you put the bag over top of you. And it, just to be clear, not you're gonna stick your head through the hole, not your bag in, the, not your head in the bag. You, you stick your head out of the hole. Thank you. So yeah. you're not there's no plastic against your face. Just just don't want anybody. Yeah, no kids, no kids listen to this podcast. <laughs> yes, it's dangerous. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you poke a little hole for your head, and you pull the 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 that bag around your head over top of your body and you're essentially creating a vapor barrier that doesn't allow the, the wind to lick your the heat away from your body and it's a way to stay dry yeah totally because no matter what like, no matter what you think and how much money you spend on your Gore-Tex layers they are not absolutely waterproof no. like like water will find its way in. I mean, a lot of times it finds its way in through your your cuffs, like it works yep. your way down your hands, or it comes in from the top under your neck and works its way down to your shoulders, and basically starts to disperse down to your body. Um, but I've also when it, when you're just so saturated, the cortex eventually starts to breathe in that moisture. One way or another, water finds its way in under under those conditions. So if you're just sitting around like sticking your head through a hole in a garbage bag, and you know, basically, yeah. Yeah. Bringing the putting the bar, bar, garbage bag over your core, over your body and arms and everything, um, is another another barrier for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those are a couple things. So uh, to, okay, and then of course the toque, and I think that's probably essential. Toques and gloves, which are a very light yep. thing to throw in your pack, and, yep. and and really produces a lot of uh, a benefit if you're in a, if you're if you're out there. So the other thing we talked about was maybe like. Uh, your signaling devices. So if you're sitting there waiting, your buddy's kind of come find you. Maybe he's got a GPS cord and he knows kind of where you are, but you still got to draw him right into where you are. Um, what are a couple of essentials would you think of for signaling devices? So you always want to carry a, a whistle with you. For hunting purposes, I just keep my whistle tucked into a, into a kit or in the top lid of my pack so it's not rattling around making noise. Whistle for sure. Uh, you can use your compass again, a multi-function device because it's got a, a mirror on it, so you can use the, the mirror to kind of f use the sun to flash or signal uh, your body or, uh, or any any airplanes or aircraft that are overhead. Uh, and you can so we talked about sound attractant, we talked about light attractant. The other thing is your headlamp. So headlamps are a great way to signal folks uh, in in the dark or in poor visibility conditions. 
you can use the headlamp to signal. Um, they even have, most headlamps have this nifty strobe setting that, that really attracts the light, or really attracts the eye. Uh, so if there's an aircraft overhead, you can use the, the uh, strobe setting to try to uh, alert people to your presence in the area. Totally. Do you know the universal signal for SOS? Yeah, SOS. Okay. Are you talking about the uh, the universal signal for like hand signals or no, 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 no. I guess okay, sorry. I mean, the hunting community, anyways. That so oh, the the hunting signal yeah, for SOS. So if another if you if you ever if you ever heard bang, 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 that is you uh, that either is somebody missing a deer three times, <laughs> but more than likely, if it's at that same pace, it's probably somebody who's. Uh, on the side of a mountain and needs help. Yep. And uh, they're, they're using their firearm as, as a signaling device. Yep. Similarly, if you blew a whistle three times, bang, that's beep, right. no. that's, well, not in the same tone, all the same tone, uh, <laughs> and three, and with a break in between, that's SOS. So it's, uh, what is that, that Morse code? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you ever hear that, that's, that's, a, that's an indication to, to take a look around and see what's going on. Yeah, three shots, three of anything in a row. Yeah. yeah. It's a three elk bugles in a row, two hoochie <laughs> mama calls in a row. Hoochie uh, mama calls, yeah. yeah. But it's a universal sign that I need some help. So um, if if you want more information on the you know, emergency prepare, getting getting prepped, there's a really good website called Adventure Smart. It's a friend of ours. Awesome. Uh, yeah, an old friend of ours, uh, Sandra. Um, she used to be a park ranger for many years, and uh, she's put together this amazing program with tons of resources online. Um, the Adventure Smart program, pretty easy to find. I think it's adventuresmart.ca. Um, you can look there. It, there's. Um, we didn't even talk about trip planning and, and, no, and the essentials. Yeah, yeah, to basically write all the information down that you can about where you're going, when you're going to be there, and and uh, listen all your contacts and making that available to. Uh, to uh, you know, somebody who can be your check-in, but that's for another day. I think we'll wrap it up here. We're just talking about the essentials for your kit, um, but definitely check that out. Check out that the the, the um, planning stuff. Now, we were one of the resources we were just looking at here for trying to figure out what the hell are we should be talking about is we actually took out the Eat Wild app. Yep. And on, I love that. Yeah, it's kind of fun. So a while, if you haven't seen it yet, I, 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 I've been meaning to promote it more coming into this hunting season, but it's got. It's got all our videos from like what we've done over the past five years of you know how to gut a deer and how to you know debone an animal and all, all the all, is it how to uh, how to build how to cook over a fire a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, but my, my favorite thing on that app is the checklist. It's amazing. So the checklist. So the uh, well, first of all, before I so the point of the app is that you can be able to go out in the field and have access to those videos. Well, well offline so you can if you can break out the the app when you've got a deer down it'll will you'll have a video of me coaching you through how to gut a deer and so on um we're going to build more videos particularly on this trip we'll probably do a few things on like how to use a compass and and a few things like how what do you do if you get lost video um so we'll build those on and they'll go on the app so it's good be good value for you guys and it gives me a, a place to kind of um yeah kind of build that up and I, i'm kind of excited about it but the other thing that's on there is the regs are on there, but the other thing that's on there is the uh, eWell checklists, which are kind of all the stuff we talked about today. There's lists on there that you can, as you're planning for your trip, you can click on those little link, or you can click on those things that, to say you've checked them off and you've got them in your bag. And there's lists for everything from you know your backpack hunting, your base camp, your alpine camp, your safety kit, your technic kit, tech kit, survival kit. So kind of been working off that so it's a, it's a useful tool so you can check that out you can find it on the app store this is called the Eat wild hunting app i think and you can find it through our website as well so kind of cool but any last thoughts on surviving and planning and trip planning and being safe out there rob yeah absolutely if you get lost sit your butt down build your shelter and stay warm and dry don't continue wandering around in circles because you you're essentially just wandering further and further away from help Absolutely. And, and also, you're probably at that point when you realize you're lost, you're going into a bit of a sense of panic. Yep. And you have that sense of anxiety. And that's what's sort of clouding your thinking. A lot of times, and this is a great line from Jeff, uh, he said, you know, you're not necessarily lost. You're just temporarily confused. Yeah. And that's a really good thing to say because a lot of times you'll actually sit down, have a bit of food, get a little fire going, take a little break. And then you can actually reevaluate totally what actually happened and how you found your way into this. And you'll actually realize, like, oh, there was actually two mountains there. And I went through the pass in between as I was contouring around the mountain. And 
or and you're just not where you think you are, but now when you actually think back on it, you're like, oh, that's a that's a probable explanation to explain why I'm not looking down at the lights of Vancouver anymore when I thought I was, and I'm looking at some giant body of water that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> so that's because you contoured around the wrong side of the hill, and you're and uh, and now you're looking down at a house sound and you're stuck on a cliff. But yeah. hopefully that's not you. Yeah, hopefully that's <laughs> not you. Yeah, but, but nonetheless, uh, you, you can often take a few minutes, get a clear head, and then uh, and come up with, formulate a plan that can get you unlost without putting yourself at further risk. But as Rob says, if you are absolutely lost, you have no idea what you're doing or you're hurt, um, you know, by and large, the, the search and rescue community and, and, and uh, would you know suggest that you stay put until someone can come find you. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, totally. Now, having said that, from a hunt, from a hunter community, if you're, there's a whole other series of, of thoughts you might want to put together to decide whether or not you're going to work your way out of the bush. But we'll, we'll save that for another episode. Sounds good. For, anyways, I appreciate you sitting around, Rob, and checking this out. Yeah, thanks. Sounds for like the rain is calming down a little bit, so maybe we'll get out there for a weather report, see if we can see the mountains, and uh, otherwise we'll be uh, dreaming up another podcast for this afternoon. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, thanks everybody. Yeah.